3: Hello. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Lenski. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron
2: Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello.
4: Hey, 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 hey.
2: Hello, Max Linsky, host of 70 Over 70, another podcast. Aaron Lammer, host of Exit Scam, another podcast. I feel like you guys should say that every time. Evan, where is your podcast? I don't have a podcast. I'm just an independent journalist out here doing my own thing.
4: I'll tell you, I, I met someone who listens to my new podcast, Exit Scam, who was a fan of The Mastermind. That's a book
2: by Evan Ratliff. Hey, all right, crossover.
4: It's, it's still available. Hey, is it available on paperback? It is
2: indeed available in paperback.
4: I don't think we've ever even mentioned on the show that the the price of mastermind has has gone down now. If you were holding out on the hard cover run, uh, this time is for you. So we've all got free to affordable projects that you can support uh, as listeners to the show. Please subscribe to 70 over 70. That's Max's show. Please subscribe to exit scam. That's my show. And please go buy a copy of the mastermind. Okay. We've taken care of that. Who's on the show this week,
3: man, you are, you are, uh, you are incredible slinging this stuff. And uh, we've got another independent journalist with a thing to sling this week on the show. It's Rose Evelith, who is the host of the uh, flash forward podcast, which is part of a network of podcasts that Rose herself has started. She has a book out, it's called Flash Forward, obviously, an illustrated guide to possible and not so possible tomorrows. The format of Flash Forward is that uh, Rose takes an idea, something that will happen in the future, and then investigates it and sees uh, how it might play out and also how that might impact our choices in the moment. The book takes a bunch of those ideas and sort of reimagines them. She collaborated with artists who did sort of graphic treatments of those ideas. And then she wrote essays about them. It's all super, super fascinating. And she's really, really good at it. So we talked about how she does it, but also like why she does it. Because She does her work in a way that feels quite unique to me. It's completely independent. She does it on her own. She runs the business side and the content. And that was after a bunch of full-time gigs at very established places that, um, I mean, I don't know. I'll let her tell it but there's a reason that she's doing this stuff independently now. And uh, it was a total pleasure to talk to her. I also think this is a particularly good episode if you are a freelancer because Rose has real strong thoughts on how to do that and she has, like, Google Docs that she will share with you that explain it all. Wow. 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 Hey, uh, if
4: you're gonna do anything independently, it's gonna need an email newsletter. That's uh, that's how you're gonna uh, corral all the people who care about what you're doing. And you can get one with MailChimp. In fact, they make the best ones. I really recommend you check them out, thanks to MailChimp. And now here's Max with Rose Eveleth.
3: Hey, Rose. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm very excited. Long time, first time.
3: <laughs> yeah, long time, first time here, too. I'm a, uh, I'm a fan of your stuff. You're here now because you have put out a book, but uh, I'd like to go back, if we can, before we talk about the book. Is that okay?
1: A classic podcasting move. Before we can understand where we are today, we have to go back.
3: I mean, that's literally how you start most of your episodes.
1: Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I do want to talk to you about your future, Rose. Okay. But first... <laughs> To get there. Yeah, I think we need to understand where you've been. Yeah,
1: yeah. I've actually banned myself from using that phrase in the podcast like starting last year. I was like, I cannot say that phrase again. It's like too <laughs> cliché for the <this> show now. <laughs>
3: um here's the thing that I'm genuinely curious about. You are uh at least from like my vantage point a truly independent journalist who is straddling a bunch of different lines you're running a podcast network you're hosting a show you're writing books you're cutting deals you're doing it all and i wonder where that like spirit comes from do you think
1: well it all goes back to when i was a child (laughs) um uh which actually is i think sort of true i tell the story sort of in a joking way but i also think that it potentially does explain a lot which is that i as a kid never learned to ride a bicycle And as an adult, I was like, I would like to learn to ride a bicycle. And so I I taught myself or whatever. And then I was talking to my parents and I was like, wait a minute, like, why didn't you ever teach me how to ride a bicycle? Right. Like, that seems like the kind of thing you teach a child. And they were like, oh, you just never asked. If you had asked, we would have taught you. And I was like, I feel like that's your job as parents to like predict these kinds of things. But like, it's totally true. And that's like kind of how they are, how they were. And I like asked to be scuba certified at 12 because I thought I would be the next like Jacques Cousteau. Turns out finding someone who will certify a 12-year-old in New Jersey is hard. And so we went to like these <laughs> former Marines who had this like scuba school. And so I like got certified at 12. And like that was very much the way they are. Is like if you ask for it, they'll help you figure it out and you can do it. But like you kind of got to ask for it. And so I feel like that's just sort of like always been my thing of just like going after it.
3: <laughs> well, yeah, but here, here's my question. Like uh, New Jersey, yeah. uh, a place I'm somewhat familiar with. Very heavy bicycle culture. Yeah. See a lot of kids on bikes oh, yeah. in New Jersey. Yeah. I had friends so who
1: learned how to ride bikes.
3: I assume most of them. <laughs> yeah. You're walking around New Jersey, all your friends are riding bikes. It doesn't occur to you to be like, I'd like to get on a bike. The thought that twelve year old Rose has is scuba diving.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was like, you know what? Let's try the weird thing <laughs> which also I feel like maybe sums up a lot.
3: <laughs> so so that is where you like where you trace that instinct from is like just trying to like do the thing on your own rather than doing the thing that everyone is doing?
1: Yeah, I think so. I was always like the weird kid. My parents are very strange. My dad hiked the Appalachian Trail by himself. He's like that kind of guy. My mom is also like that. So I never quite felt like I fit in. Even in grad school. I went to grad school for journalism, but I didn't have any experience in journalism. I had like gone to school for science. I thought I'd be a scientist. And actually I I tease the head of that program now at NYU, which is the science, health, and environmental reporting program, Dan. I always tease him because I actually did not get in. I was waitlisted. And I joke with him about it because he was like, yeah, your application was like bizarre because you had no experience. (laughs) I wrote this like weird speculative fiction piece to like apply to journalism school. And he was like, who is this person? Uh, And so I did not get in. I actually got in off the waitlist sort of by chance, which is very rare. The program is only 15 people. And most of the time... Everyone just says yes when they get in. So like the chances of getting it off the wait list are usually pretty low and I just happen to get lucky. So yeah, I've like always kind of been like, oh, that seems fun. I'll try that. Why not? You know, like <laughs> <laughs> let's do it.
3: I love the idea that they like finally had a slot open up and they were like, all right, who's on the wait list? others oh, that's speculative fiction <laughs> weird kid
1: lady, like, what, <laughs>
3: what is up with her yeah that would throw an interesting element into the yeah, cohort right
1: really I was like the wild card in like the reality tv show where they like throw in the wild card potentially villain character like that was me <laughs> in grad school
3: <laughs> what was your experience in grad school was, was it worthwhile for you
1: it was great I mean like I didn't know anything about journalism like I didn't know what a lead was I had no idea how to write a story like I knew nothing and so it was why would you want to do it I knew I didn't want to do science because I had actually gotten very lucky and was able to work in a lab while I was an undergrad and kind of like get a sense for like what that would actually be like as a job. And I sort of was like, oh, I don't actually want to be doing this. Um, (laughs) Part of the problem was I couldn't focus on any one specific thing. And like if you want to go get a Ph.D. and become a scientist, you do kind of have to like pick a field (laughs) to be working in. And I had like applied to grad school in like four very different fields like marine biology i got very interested in orchid bees at one point so i was like maybe i'll go do that and like i had this very kind advisor who was my boss in the lab who was like you know if you can't even figure out like which field of biology you're interested in like maybe you shouldn't be going to grad school for it and they actually had a student who had gone to a different science journalism graduate program i think it was the mit one and it had never occurred to me that that was like a thing you could do. It would be like write about science as opposed to mm-hmm. do the science. And so it just seemed like the right combination. I loved writing and I really liked science, but I didn't want to do science. and It seemed like an obvious thing to try. And I was really late to apply. I think I like learned about the program a couple of weeks before the deadline. And so I just like did. That's why for the reason I like submitted weird fiction because I didn't have anything to submit. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, it was just like it seemed like a good combination of the stuff that I was interested in. But when I got there, I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. (laughs) Just truly no idea. So it's great. I learned a ton.
3: Did that feeling freak you out or was it exciting?
1: It was exciting. It was exciting. Even when I didn't know what I was doing, like we were reading stuff That I was like, oh, yeah, it would be really cool to write this kind of thing. Like, I didn't have a ton of exposure to science publications, right? Like, my parents did not listen to NPR. Like, that was not on in our house. We were a Rush Limbaugh, Dr. Laura, Opie and Anthony, horrible, shock jock stuff on the radio in our house.
3: Your dad was a hike the Appalachian Trail by himself while listening to Rush Limbaugh kind of person. Oh yeah, (laughs) that is there's not a lot of crossover in that Venn diagram.
1: Yeah, they're weird people. I love them, but they are weird people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I will say they no longer listen to Rush Limbaugh. They have swung pretty pretty clearly leftwards. But yeah, growing up, it was like that. I didn't think of like being on the radio as a thing that I would want to do. Yeah, and so it wasn't like I went in like all of my, not all, but many of my. You know classmates had like read the new yorker and like i didn't even know what the new yorker was you know (laughs) so like that kind of stuff it was being exposed to a whole kind of thing that i didn't even know existed and i was like oh yeah this is uh, this is really cool
3: can we just go back to arriving there yeah because when i hear you talk about showing up in a grad school program having gotten in with a little bit of speculative fiction (laughs) and realizing like oh i actually don't know anything about this uh that's like um, some sort of recurring nightmare for me. Like I, I didn't turn, <laughs> I never finished my math class. I never graduated from college or whatever, you know? But, but you were cool with that?
1: So I was never a great student. So like the idea of failing... A class never really scared me because I was like, yeah, I've been there, done that, don't really care. So for me, it was just more exciting that I was learning stuff. And like, it was really satisfying to do. And I think it's true for everyone there, even if you have a little bit of experience. And some people did come in having like worked for their college newspaper or whatever but even if you have that experience they really do like throw you in the deep end at the very beginning like you are writing stories interviewing people like from the get-go and so I wasn't alone in that feeling there were other people there who also were kind of like whoa like what's happening here and so in some ways there was that that helped That I didn't feel like I was the only one who was like whoa <laughs> Like, What are we doing? But I don't know. I like that feeling. I like leaning into something where, you know, when you find a story idea and you're like, oh, I don't know anything about this. And then you lose 19 hours to like reading stuff and like, you know, whatever that feeling. That's my like drug of choice in many ways is like finding those places where you're like, oh shit, I did not know that this was even a thing. And now I'm going to like get to really like dig into it for an extended period of time.
3: And is that, I mean, I, I want to talk about your journalism and your work on the show and the book, but part of the reason I'm so excited to talk to you is that you have engaged like so fully with the business side of what you're doing too. And do you bring the same energy to that part of it as well? Like, is that exciting and interesting or is that like a necessary evil to do the stuff you want to do?
1: I think it's a little bit of, Both. I don't love it. It I don't get that same kind of like, ooh, I'm going to figure out how podcast analytics work. Like this will be fun. (laughs) You know, like I don't feel that. But I do actually try to trick myself a little bit into that zone to be able to do some of this stuff. Because like the downside of being like this is that when that feeling isn't there, it can be very hard for me to do the thing that needs to get done. Mm -hmm. And so like for me, for a lot of the business stuff, I will try and like almost gamify it for myself in that way to be like, okay, what is the fun, cool thing I can try with this? So like for ads, you know, who likes writing and reading advertisements? Not that many people probably. And so I like came up with a little thing to be like, okay, well, maybe what I'll do for every ad is I'll like put in a secret reference so that if listeners get that reference, I send them a sticker. And so like, I like have a little game where I'm like trying to make it fun for myself because yeah, otherwise I just won't do it.
3: (laughs) (laughs) For the record, I love reading ads, and the ones you're about to hear will be uh, delivered with gusto and and vigor.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: <laughs> when you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, "Chef, what course are we on?" I've I've lost count. Or,
3: "Shoot that! Shoot that!"
0: And even...
3: Checkout's not until 4, so...
0: Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline.
3: So you get out of J school, you have figured out what a lead is (laughs) and what comes next? What kind of work were you trying to do?
1: I went right into freelancing and that was like weird at the time. I think now there's more of a sense that like freelancing is a choice that you make as opposed to a thing that happens to you if you can't get a job. But I just knew that there wasn't a job that let me do all the stuff that I wanted to do. And that included things like audio, podcasts, radio stuff. I was at the time like learning how to do animation and so i was doing little animations for like scientific american and stuff because literally at a meeting someone was like we need animation but that will be expensive and i was like i can do it i did not know how to do it and so i learned <laughs> how to do it so that i could file this thing i was like i'm an intern what's the worst that could happen they fire me like oh well i'm not being paid anyway <laughs> like, you know um and so i figured out how to do animation so i was working on that i was learning how to like code stuff so doing just like basic infographic like coding stuff for different places and that was at the time too where like if you knew very basic JavaScript and CSS. It was like magic to a lot of publications. They would just like pay you totally. money to do stuff. So yeah, so it was um it was sort of a weird time in journalism where you could kind of like do a lot of different stuff and nobody really knew what was going on.
3: What like years are we talking that about? That was like
1: 2010, 2011.
3: So just like post-recession times.
1: Yeah, yeah. And like it was right when a lot of publications, especially on the science side, were finally taking down the, the wall between like print and online. And so there was a lot of like shuffling. There were a lot of people on the online side who were excited to have more hands and people on the print side who were like, Oh God, I don't want to have to learn how to like use a CMS ever. And so like there was just a lot, I think of space to be that kind of like weird person who dabbles in a lot of different projects. And everyone was like, kind of trying a lot of different stuff. I think it's harder now probably to do that like weird stuff that I was doing at the time. But yeah, so I just went right into freelancing. I was like, let's see if I can, and if like, I can't make it work. I can figure out something else. I don't know.
3: And what what were your like uh, what were your ambitions then? Like where did you wanna be? What kind of work did you wanna be doing? Like I totally understand that impulse of just being like, Oh, I know animations <laughs> in the you know, in the meeting when you're the intern, but like what did you want then for your for your work?
1: I don't know that I knew very clearly. I knew that I like enjoyed doing a lot of different things. And I enjoyed sort of like the problem-solving aspect of that kind of thing, where it's like, what is the best way to tell this story? Is it going to be an animation or is it going to be an infographic or is it going to be an audio story? And like having the flexibility to make that choice aesthetically was really exciting. I think I probably thought, ooh, maybe I will eventually get a job at Radiolab or something like that, like sort of doing that stuff. but. I mean, when you first start freelancing, your main goal is just like find work anywhere possible, right? And so you're just like trying to keep the lights on in a lot of ways. So I don't know that I had like super long-term goals at the time because I was just trying to like make it work. But I think, I don't know, my goal is always to just like have fun, which sounds like it was incredibly privileged. It also sounds like kind of like a woo-woo, like, oh, just have fun and it'll all work out. But uh, that is my goal in life. So that's what I'm generally driven by. And it was true at the time. I was like, that sounds fun. I'll try that.
3: I mean, what I hear you saying is, you like genuinely follow your interests. Yeah. It doesn't always work out for oh, people, def- though, It Rose. doesn't
1: always work out for me.
3: <laughs> well, what are sometimes it doesn't, it hasn't worked out for you? Because from like the sidelines, it seems like it's worked out. So, like, when are the times we're following your gut or looking for the thing that seemed fun didn't work?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's so easy in hindsight to be like, and yes, my career has this like very natural arc in which I just follow my passion and everything <laughs> works out right. Like, that's not really true in practice. I would say that there have definitely been times where there has been a project where the ethos of it, I was really into, where it would be like, we're trying to do this thing that's really cool. It's like a new media startup-y type thing where it's like, we're starting this thing. Will you help us start this thing? And it seems really cool. And all the people involved are really great. And then the kind of reality of journalism business stuff just like doesn't work. And it's really hard to start a new thing. And sometimes you know like the money doesn't end up appearing where you think there's going to be money and you know I worked on a project where there was some miscommunications between the people who were supposed to be sort of like running the business side and the people who were me commissioning a lot of the editorial and I wound up like paying some writers out of my own pocket because we had told them they'd be paid and the money didn't appear and so like there are places where it didn't work but I always learned something from it and like you know I mean, this wasn't like thousands of dollars. It was like a couple of $250 stories for like, you know, online publications. But yeah, there have definitely been times when I got really excited about something and it didn't work out.
3: And is that always when it runs up against business considerations? Or like, have you also found that in your journalism? Like when you follow your interests and look for things that will be fun simply in the work, does that go belly up very often?
1: Sometimes. I mean, in the same way that like sometimes you think you have a story and then you start doing reporting and then you're like, oh, I don't have a story. Right. Like or it's like just more complicated than you thought it was going to be. I spent a year and a half chasing this story that I was really interested in. I thought was really worth telling and it I could not sell it anywhere. And it was one of those things where like I could see the story coming, but it hadn't quite happened yet. You know, when you have a story where you're like, this is about to be a thing, but then editors are like, "Okay, but like, call me when it's a thing." <laughs> and you're like, "But you could like, we could get, you know, like you could have it." Um, and so yeah, there have definitely been things I've sunk a lot of time into that didn't work out, but I think that's like part of journalism, like trying to pitch things and find stories, right?
3: Do those things like um, haunt you at all? Like oh, the ones oh, that you yeah. didn't get to all the
1: time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think about it all the time.
3: Do you have like some file of the ones that got away?
1: Oh yeah, I have a spreadsheet of every story I've ever pitched and like what happened to it and i sometimes go back and look through it and say like okay like should i pick this back up
3: how many entries are on that spreadsheet now
1: oh i could pull it up let's see
3: while you're looking for it what prompted you to start that thing
1: i love spreadsheets (laughs) (laughs) and uh let's see pitches pitches here we are Um, especially when I was first starting out, I was sending so many pitches out and it was like partially just to track, like, who have I pitched this idea and who said Mm -hmm. no? And like, who's my second choice and whatever. And then it just became a really satisfying marker of like stuff I'm doing. Like, even if they don't all work out, just like, you know, when you feel like you've never had a good idea in your life and you'll never have a good idea again, it's like nice to be able to pull up the spreadsheet and be like, ah, no, I have in fact had scrolling, scrolling, 794 ideas. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> in my life at the very least
3: <laughs> minimum 794 minimum
1: 794
3: <laughs> that's a powerful thing to do
1: i love it i love it it's great and then also i will say like i have a little column that says like follow up in and it'll say like a year or like 6 months or whatever and so i can kind of like see if there's anything that kind of like got away at the time but is worth revisiting
3: that's such a brilliant organizational structure when you yourself are your business Do you have other tips like that? Are there other like things that you do to manage all of this?
1: Yeah, I actually have a freelancing spreadsheet that I made public for people to be able to borrow if they want it, because people ask me all the time, like, how do you keep track of everything and whatever? And so I there's a Google Doc that I sometimes tweet out when like usually sadly when there's like a round of layoffs and I'm like, here's my thing if anyone wants to use it. Um, but so, yeah, I have a publicly available like spreadsheet that has multiple tabs about like how to keep track of your taxes and like how to keep track of your pitches and how to keep track of like the stuff you're working on and all that stuff. And that works for me.
3: That's like you're legit, like you you put together a how-to? Mm-hmm. Uh, why?
1: People kept asking me, like, how do I freelance? And it would often be like friends who'd gotten laid off. And they were like, I don't even know where to begin with some of this stuff. And I found that it wasn't that hard for me to just take the thing that I use and like empty out the cells and just put it on Google Docs and like make it public. I don't know. I feel like people were very generous with me when I first started out. And I mean, like, like, I didn't know what a lead was, right? Like I needed a lot of handholding. And so people were very generous with me. And so I feel like there's no reason for me to like hoard information about freelancing. and so I might as well just like make it
3: public is is that like hoarding mentality does that exist for freelancers do you think people are like competitive in that way don't want to give up the goods definitely
1: and like there's a like if you want to pitch a magazine and you don't know how to reach one of the editors if you ask another freelancer who's written for them not all of them are willing to share that information about like literally just the email address like to pitch someone and like On the one hand, I sort of understand that because if you are an editor, you're probably inundated with pitches. And if you don't know the person and that person might send a terrible pitch, like you don't want that to be connected to your name, right? Like so much of freelancing is relationship building between editors who trust you and like, you know, will answer your emails. But at the same time, like, I don't know. My method on that is just to ask the person if I don't know them, like, what's the pitch so that I can make sure that it would even be something that that Mm -hmm. person would want. Um, But yeah, I think that there's a lot of freelancers still have like sort of a scarcity mentality, which makes sense, right? That like there is a limited number of spots in the Atlantic or whatever it is. And you kind of don't want to necessarily give up. Like maybe that person has a really good idea that's then going to like bump your idea off of the list or whatever it is. But I think more and more there is kind of like solidarity amongst freelancers, particularly as people have sort of realized that like employers in journalism like come and go right like you know all we have is each other right and so I do think that there is more of a conversation about like being helpful than there used to be
3: was that part of why you gravitated towards eventually like starting your own thing was like just to be a little bit out of like the whims of the industry and the relationship building and just like having your work so dependent on an ecosystem over which you had very little control
1: Honestly, I wish I could say that it was that. It was more that I was rejected by every podcast network that I pitched for Flash Forward. No shit. Yeah. So I tried, in fact, to sell Flash Forward to, or like take it to Gimlet, take it to lots of places, Radiotopia, et cetera. And they all said no. So I did my own thing.
3: <laughs> Tell me about that process. Like uh, how long did it take? When did you stop doing it? What were the reasons? How did you like scrape yourself off the... <laughs> like floor and make the thing anyway like how, how did yeah. how, how did that go
1: yeah well so i i sent a lot of emails out just kind of being like hey i have this show it had had a first and this season. would have been
3: like 2015 2016 yeah
1: so the first season of flash forward was called meanwhile in the future it was at gizmodo and so Annalie right. Newitz, who was there they messaged me and were like hey we're thinking about starting a podcast do you have any ideas i had sent them a list of ideas flash forward being like the one that i was most excited about they were like yes we love this it was a good match for gizmodo and io9 because it was kind of like the fiction and journalism and sort of blending we did a pilot run there and then basically by the end of that Annalie was gone and then i think it was like three weeks after the final episode the hulk hogan uh situation uh, happened (laughs) um and so like i was just like totally lost in the weeds of like or sort of like whatever um and so i took flash with me but i was like i don't know how to run a podcast like, what am I going to do, do this by myself? Like, I didn't really know how that would work. And so, yeah, I emailed everybody that I could find emails for. I, like, met with people at Gimlet. I met with people at Radiotopia, all those places. And it was interesting. It was an interesting range of conversations. But all of them basically made it clear pretty quickly that, like, War was not something that they were interested in for a lot of different reasons. It has always been a hard show to sell, both on ad sales and on like everything from awards to like these conversations around who would distribute it because it's got fiction in it, which makes journalists uncomfortable and it's got journalism in it and so it's not really a fiction show and so all the fiction networks were like well this isn't a fiction show right the fiction's <laughs> only like 5 to t- 7 minutes of the podcast right and so it never quite like fits in people's boxes it's
3: kind of amazing that like you were out pitching this show to these like journalist outfits and you were like um it is part experimental fiction but that has worked for me in this process yeah, previously right, exactly <laughs>
1: Right, right. Exactly. Listen, trust me. Um, But no, yeah, they were they were not interested. I you know, and then also like there is an element of like being and this is less true now, but like there weren't very many shows about science hosted by women. And I had one person tell me I didn't have host magic. I should find a famous person to host the show instead. So yeah, it was a, a range of conversations. But I don't know, like I am incredibly stubborn and when I want to do something, I'm going to probably do it. So (laughs) I was just like, all right, cool. I'll just do this myself.
3: (laughs) I want to dig into that moment for a second, Rose, because I I think that's rare. Like you go out, you pitch this thing, you get told all these different reasons, including like host magic, go find a famous person. And did it not cross your mind? Like, okay, this one's not the thing. Where does it come from to just be like, uh, you know, I'm going to fucking figure it out how to do it anyway.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it helped that I did have people who liked the show already. Like the show had 23 episodes and people were into it and Annalie was into it. And people who I really respected were like, this is cool. You should keep doing it. I don't think I had a lot of illusions that it was like the best show I ever made. I, I didn't really know how to use Pro Tools. I was like learning how to do all of this while making the show. I didn't know how to mix Fiction audio. Like, I think I knew the show wasn't like this beautiful, perfect object that people were going to get in some bidding war to buy. Right. But I also really genuinely believed like there was something there and that there was like mm-hmm. something worth pursuing and that there was a value in the combination of fiction and journalism for things like the future and science and technology. And I like believed in it enough and had enough people who I really respected telling me like you should keep doing it that like it wasn't like. I was starting from zero and just pitching the idea. I did have a proof of concept and I did have people who were really supportive, who I really thank like for keeping me going, like Ed, Ed Young, who would be like, no, 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 you can't give up. Like You got to keep going. And so it's not like it came out of just my own like right. ego or whatever, where I was like, no, uh, this is a great idea.
3: You were getting like positive encouragement. It just wasn't coming from people who potentially could make it. Like right. financially viable for you. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I did come out of like a weird like I didn't know anything about prestige podcasts. Like I didn't know, like I didn't listen to Gimlet until I was like sort of pitching them stuff because I was like, I don't this is not the world I live in. Like it the show didn't sound like that stuff. And so I get it. Like it doesn't fit. Like I heard that a lot. It doesn't really fit with what we do. And I'm like, yep, that's not incorrect, right? Like that's true. yeah. yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. yeah I can't fault you for that. <laughs>
3: Has the use of fiction evolved over the course of the show?
1: Yeah, I think so. I've tried to experiment with it a lot because it's fun. (laughs) Um, But also, I think I've gotten a lot clearer about the function that it serves in the show. When I first started making the show, I didn't have, like, a grand unifying theory of why this was a good idea. And then over the years, I sort of have realized... What the purpose of the fiction is in a much more like kind of theoretical, like what am I doing here, kind of way, and so I've tailored it to actually serve that function as opposed to just being like, ooh, that's fun. <laughs> like-
3: <laughs> what does that look like? I mean, can you can you sort of help me understand how you make that call, like when when it should come in?
1: Yeah, so I think that the reason why fiction is good for a show like Flash Forward is a couple of them the first one is that it's hard to report about the future because it has not happened yet so like you can't go out and like gather tape about like what's going on so you kind of have to create these scenes but the real reason that i think that fiction is useful in this context is that often when people talk about the future it can feel very vague and it can feel really hard to relate to even around things that are specific like facial recognition or like privacy or whatever it is you kind of know that those things things exist and you like kind of have a sense that like maybe that will be a certain way but it's really hard to imagine how that actually relates to your day-to-day life in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and so giving people a scene to step into where they can do all the things you do in fiction which is like why did they do that would I have done the same thing like what would my reaction be if I was in this world and so when I think now about doing the fiction rather than just like what would be a fun scene or like what would be an interesting thing I think about like what are the Problems that someone might encounter in the future. And how can I put the listener in that scene through a character so they have to kind of mm-hmm. think through what they would do in kind of a more explicit way? And that's kind of like been the shift over the years for the fiction.
3: Is the fiction more challenging than the nonfiction parts of the show?
1: For some episodes, yes. And for some episodes, no. For some episodes, I'm like, oh, I know exactly what I want to do. Like, I have this image in my head of what that's going to be. And then for other episodes, it's harder to show things because you kind of like, it's sort of like silly, but like in the future, things don't make sounds as much as they make sounds in the past, right? When you're like dialing a phone, if you're like trying to make that an audio fiction, it's, there's nothing to hear, right? Like it used to be right. like you would put the buttons and then it would ring. right? And now even like if you get a phone call, your phone's probably like not gonna make a sound. It just like lights up and you pick it up. And so like all those little things that you sonically would hear in like, older audio fiction you can't use in the future yeah um, but even beyond that like this is like the challenge of audio fiction right like you have to kind of make it clear what's happening without having a character be like and now i am logging into my account in which i will <laughs> right, do this
3: right. <laughs> like, you know, like. why do the book like I, I imagine that agents have been calling you for years yeah. and being like why don't you do a book a yeah. book version could be cool like why do it now because i assume you must have had options
1: Yeah, people had been emailing me for a long time being like, you should do a book, you should do a book. And I just couldn't figure out what would be fun to do and that I would like want to read, honestly, as a listener. Like, I didn't want to just rewrite episodes, like take the transcripts from episodes and kind of like turn them into prose for a book. I was like, I wouldn't want to buy that if I were a listener. Like, I don't know. I just like wouldn't want to do that. It doesn't sound fun. And so, I, yeah, I couldn't think of anything for a long time. I had an agent anyway because I was sort of like thinking about other book projects and it would come up and people would ask and I would just be like, I just like I could not think of it. And then Sophie Goldstein, who's um, a comic artist, was a listener of the show, emailed me and was like, hey, I love the show. Have you ever thought about doing like a comics thing, a comic adaptation where we do like a comic and then you'd write something? And that was really where I was like, oh, that would be really cool. Like that actually sounds really fun. The idea of working with a bunch of comic artists sounds really fun. It feels like it is a reimagining of the show as opposed to just like a straight translation. I'd never done anything with like comics like that before. So that sounded fun. And so, yeah, it was 100% Sophie's idea. (laughs) Like I can take no credit for it. But that was the moment I was like, oh, yeah, that's the way to do it. That feels like a way that's going to be fun and interesting for me.
3: And what was the process like trying to sell the book?
1: It was interesting. We put together a proposal. We went out to a lot of artists sort of saying like, hey, would you be interested generally in something like this? And then we took it out and it's a weird book. It's like half comics anthology, half essays. Like, you know, it's kind of this weird hybrid. And a lot of publishers were like, well, we'd like it if it was just text. Like, could you just write the fiction pieces? And I really wanted to have different artists for every chapter. And they were like, well, we really want one. We don't want to do something that has whatever.
3: Why was that important to you to have different artists?
1: I think I wanted to sort of show a variety of interpretations of these futures because every one of the intro scenes feels different, right? Like some of them are like gimmicky radio plays and some of them are more straight and some of them are musicals. And so like they are all kind of different. And I wanted to preserve that kind of ethos in the book and kind of have the variety. And turns out comic anthologies are hard to sell. (laughs) Um, But Abrams actually like got it immediately and was like, yes, we really like this. They've published a lot of comic stuff already. And so once we met them, I was like, oh, yeah, okay that's who we should go with.
3: It is a different book. Like it feels different to read it. It took me a second literally just like kind of grok what was going on, Mm -hmm. you know? Did it take you a second to figure out what the thing would be? Or did you guys have this relatively clear in your heads and it was just about like executing it?
1: I think it was relatively clear. You know, I talked to Matt and Sophie who were co-edited on the book with me, thankfully, because they both know about comics and I do not. I had to be like, (laughs) what are the stages of like creating? Like I had no idea. Again, like no clue how this would work. Um, And they were very patient and lovely and uh, made sure that the book like looks great. But yeah, I think from the very beginning, it was like I knew I wanted every chapter to start with a comic. And then I leaned on Matt and Sophie to be like, how many pages is like going to be doable for artists but also enticing and feel like enough pages to like really get into it right because like we could have done and some of the people we talked to some of the publishers wanted like a two-page comic and then mostly the essay and I really wanted it to be able to like get into the characters not that you can't do that in two pages but to give them a little more breathing room and so we gave every artist an option for like a page range right like they didn't have to do like 16 or whatever most of them actually ended up opting to like go almost the full length if not the full length of the 16 to kind of get into it but once sophie pitched it and i got it in my head i was like i was pretty clear on like what i wanted
3: well it's it's a feat the book feels like a feat to me i'm interested in how you make choices with the work too because the the bucket you have set up for yourself which feels to me like one of the more sort of like brilliant conceits for a show that exists out there cuz you you could make the show for the rest of time. Yeah. Right? There are infinite futures. Yeah. I mean, is that daunting to you the fact that <laughs> like this can conceivably never end? <laughs> like or is it, or is that is that is that exciting?
1: Yeah, neither. It's like I think about this a lot, actually, because there was a period of time about two and a half years ago when things were like not going well for the show. Listeners were way down. My ad sales company like sold zero ads on an entire year of the show. And I was like, "Okay, is this the end of the road for Flash Forward? Right. Like and I do believe that like not everything needs to go on forever. Not every project has to be like an infinity project. And so like I was trying to kind of think through like how will I know when flash forward is done like how will I know to end something it's hard right like and I think a lot of shows go through this right where they like change hosts I mean I you know don't have the same kind of like golden handcuffs as some of the big shows that like have to kind of keep going because they have whole staffs to like keep employed and whatever but you know I wanted to think through like how will I know that it's time to be like that was a good run move on to other projects. And I don't know that I have like a really great answer for that still. But the thing I was thinking about was like, do I feel like I'm still learning things, not just like content wise, but also learning about what I'm interested in, how to make the show and sort of about fiction or reporting or whatever it is. And do I feel like the show is providing something to the audience that like has a function that other that isn't being filled elsewhere mm-hmm. and when those two things no longer are true when I feel like I'm just sort of going through the motions and doing the same thing and not learning anything and also that like maybe they can get the same kind of stuff elsewhere that'll probably be when I decide it's time to be done but the actual number of like possible episodes is very freeing because I don't feel like oh god I mean I do sometimes feel like oh god what are we gonna do like what are the next set of episodes but like <laughs> it never feels like that we're ever going to run into some sort of like natural limit that like you've interviewed all the people you can interview like you know for, right, like, right. The, about this thing
3: right i mean it's interesting that you're kind of like when am i going to stop learning because i feel like it is so broad in a way like it's it's essentially just like a sort of blank canvas for your own curiosity yeah right
1: yeah and it can go anywhere right like i can be like i want to make a mini season about this topic in the future Right? Like, it literally yeah, could yeah, be yeah.
3: anything. <laughs> like... you know, there's an episode recently, which is also in the book, about smart cities, which feels to me like a super straightforward version of the show. Mm-hmm. It has this amazing thing at the top about, like, you know, sentient park benches. And, like, I listened to it walking through the park, was looking at a bench, was just like, holy shit, that is actually, like, that could happen. That could happen kind of soon. Like, part of what I'm interested in is, like, How much of this is driven by things you're trying to figure out in 2021 rather than helping other people figure out in the future?
1: I think the secret to any and all science fiction is that it's always about the present, right? Like that's sort of true of any sci-fi that you ever read is that that's like people trying to figure out how to live now versus, you know, moon colonies right like Ursula K. Le Guin's books are not about going to the moon right like that's not what they're about so yeah a lot of them are not all of them I think some of them are I think about the episodes in two big buckets one of them is like weird shit I'm interested in where I'm like I want to learn about like like we did an episode recently about um what would it be like if you could be like immune to all poison venom Venom. like everything yeah 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 (laughs) um and that just literally came out of because I got a press release about like snakes that use like magnetic techniques to like attract and repel other snakes venom inside their bodies. And I was like, that's fucking awesome. (laughs) Right. Like that's really (laughs) cool and interesting. And then I kind of fell down a rabbit hole of like, yeah, like how does venom work and learned a ton of stuff about it? And so like things that I just find like cool and weird and interesting. So that's like one bucket. And the other one is like things I'm trying to figure out, like how do you make a better future? How should we be? How are we supposed to think about these things? Like, should I care about Blank, or do I not actually need to care about that? Because there's so many things to get freaked out about, I think, in the news and stuff. And so, like, part of it is me being like, okay, on a scale of one to 10, like, how much should I worry about Starlink, right? Like, is that like a thing I should be thinking about all the time, or a thing I should only be thinking about like once a month, or whatever it is?
3: Is that a two or a nine?
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so, some of it is that, and also just like trying to think through what is a good solution. I don't put a lot of stock in the idea that, like, you can't critique things if you don't have a solution because, like, I think that's bullshit. But, like, some of what I think about is, okay if I know that I don't want that future, like, what would it actually look like to not have that? Like, how would how do you avoid it? The sort of questions of what could I do now that might help are things I think a lot about and sort of use the show in some ways to, like, work through.
3: Are there examples of that? I mean, are there things that you can draw a direct line between work you've done on the show and something that's changed, whether it's about you or the way you live or in your life. Like one of the things you learn doing these interviews for years and years and years is that people are kind of like always writing about themselves on some level, even like war correspondents, you know, they're trying to figure something out themselves and listening to the show. I I have wondered over the years, whether like there's stuff that you're really working out and and whether it's impacting your life now.
1: Yeah. The most obvious example, I think, is I am sort of like obsessed with the way that humans and animals interact and like why we think the things we do about animals. It's it's sort of a running joke among flash forward listeners now because they know that like there's always going to be some like weird animal thing because I'm like, <laughs> why is it that we think about facial recognition in people a lot, but then we just use it on animals like that's no problem. Like, is that a thing we should be worried about? And people are like, Why? Like, that's a ridiculous question, but I don't think it's a ridiculous question. So I think probably the most, most obvious example is I did an episode about animal testing and sort of the future of of animal testing, because I was like, I don't actually totally understand this. And like, I don't understand what is necessary, what is not necessary. Like, how should I be thinking about this? You know, all of that. But we do a lot of animal related episodes because I am just like, I mean, I have a pet dog and I do think a lot about like how weird it is that humans have domesticated animals. Like, it's just weird when you start thinking about, like, there's this creature that I, like, has agency, has some sort of internal life, right? Like, whatever it is. And I, like, put it on a leash and I walk it around. And it's just, like, weird, you know? Like, and just thinking through, like... How much do they understand about the world? And if we if we really knew how animals think, would we do the things that we do? to the, I don't know. Just like that's a big one that I'm like constantly trying to figure out in my own life. Um, and then therefore on the show, it's like animals <laughs> as a category.
3: Is that curiosity that you're talking about? Is that diminishing or growing for you?
1: You mean about animals specifically or in no, general?
3: No, I mean in general, like you're like on the um like the rose curiosity meter like are we are we up right now or are we down
1: i would say i think we're up right now in the, the, the the curiosity index is rising um in part because i'm wrapping a project that i'm working on and so i'm now like kind of able to start like thinking about other things. You know when you're like deep in on production on something and you're like, the only thing I can think about right now is like this set of episodes that I'm working on. And so now that I'm out of it or almost out of it, I do feel like now I'm like, oh yeah, what about that? Like what if I looked really deeply into like that thing? Um, Mm -hmm. uh, I'm learning a lot about fungus right now. Very interested in fungus as like a category.
3: What's going on with you, fungus? Yeah.
1: Did you know, I learned this recently, that fungus is more closely related to us than to plants? Like, didn't know that. I did not know that. Yeah. So there's a reason why it's actually very hard to kill fungus, fungal infections in humans, is because most of the things that kill fungus also kills us. And so it is very challenging to treat those infections. Huh. You should stop me because I will start rattling off more fungus facts. And I don't (laughs) know that that's the good
3: use of our time. I'm not sure we need to spend too much time on fungus facts, but we you know if we, we can do a bonus episode, that's yeah, just straight fungus yeah, facts. I think part of the reason I ask that question about curiosities is I've listened to the show for a long time. I've read a lot of stuff that you've written, but also I try not to look at Twitter very much, but sometimes when I do look at it, you're expressing very strong opinions about the industry in which you work. And, I would categorize them as displeased.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair to like,
3: say. <laughs> like I my sense is, is that your time since submitting experimental fiction <laughs> in a science journalism grad program at NYU has been that like the industry writ large, the business concerns in journalism, the things that you have come up against that are not about the work have been unpleasant. It, does that seem accurate to you?
1: so yeah I mean like I think a lot about the fact that like I am incredibly like lucky and privileged to be able to succeed and like make it work and that's in part because like I don't have student debt right like I don't have some of these other things and I think a lot about how many people wouldn't be like just don't have the tools and opportunities to be able to do the kind of thing that I do and I think that's like a huge loss for the industry and it doesn't seem to be getting better the doors are not necessarily opening for those folks more than they were when I was starting out.
3: Yeah, I I mean, I agree with that. I I would dispute that at all. And I guess I was wondering whether there is a connection between that frustration and seeing these patterns happen again and again and again and, like, the Rose-Evilith curiosity index.
1: Mm. I think that if I didn't have that pretty bizarrely insatiable drive to do this stuff and like understand things and that curiosity I don't know that I would still be doing this right like I think that like the curiosity index has to be high in order to make the rest of it worth it because otherwise like what's the point like otherwise like I should go get a real job you know um and I mean like I will be totally honest like especially early on in the pandemic I was like I should just go become an EMT. Like, I make a weird show about the future. Like, am I doing anything that anyone needs? You know, (laughs) like, I don't know. Why am I fighting so hard for this industry that, like, will never love me back? And also is maybe not even doing that much to, like, help educate people about the importance of vaccines and that? Like, you know, like, I have like a full on spiral. Right. And so I think there are definitely days where I'm like, yeah, why am I doing this? Like, why? Like, what makes it worth it? And, I don't always have a good answer. Some days I don't have a good answer. Some days that balance, like that math doesn't work out. But I do think that when it's, when I'm actually doing the work and I'm actually working with the people who I like working with and when I'm, you know, in it, making the shows and interviewing people and getting to come up with weird fictional scenes and like commissioning musicians to make me a sitcom song about living underground. Like I have to focus on that because there's a reason why I care a lot and I want other people to be able to like do all this weird shit that I do. Right. And so like, it has to be, it has to feel rewarding in order to make the rest of it feel worth it.
3: I feel like this must be a question you get all the time, but, um, what are the like possible and not so possible futures for you? Like what, uh, yeah. What do you want to do next? What, where's all this going for you?
1: Um, my, Possible and not so possible. Actually, feels like both. It is both possible and not so possible future. I would like to write a fiction book. I would like to write a science fiction book. You know, every morning I do my morning pages and I write a little bit of my book, <laughs> and I have thirty thousand words. That's awesome. So, uh yes, I would love to do that. That's a big goal of mine. Is to at least like, even if it never sees the light of day, which like is probably the more likely outcome, um <laughs> to just like have it, like finish it, and say like, okay, that was like, see if that's the thing I want to do. So that's my big one right now that I'm thinking a lot about.
3: That and fungus.
1: Well, they're related.
3: (laughs) It's a science fiction book about fungus? Yes.
1: Yes!
3: (laughs) Uh, Thank you so much for doing this. It was such a pleasure (laughs) to talk to you.
1: Thank you for having me. This is fun. Thanks for putting up with all my fungal facts.
3: (laughs) Okay, listen, I'm here for the fungal facts, always. I'll be there for the book too.
1: Exciting. Yeah. Well, we'll see. It may be shelved in a drawer forever, but at least it will be a thing that I can say, like, I tried that.
3: Well, if, if nothing else, you can submit it for some sort of grad program.
1: <laughs> when I go back to grad school for science though, this time. <laughs> so yeah. Keep, right. Right. Keep, right. Just You're, keep it going. Yeah.
3: For, for med school. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. Exactly.
3: Thank you, Rose. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky, my co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Gabriella Saldivia. Gabriella, such a pleasure to be working with you. And our intern is Julianne Sato-Parker. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp, for making this show possible. And thanks so much to Rose. Her tips for freelancers are in the show notes. Go check them out. The show is Flash Forward. The book is by the same name. See you next week.
0: Stay a vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two hour nap because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel which means a 4 p.m. checkout and those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply.